episode we talked to john fox about his game ordinary worlds and a lot of it has to do with motivation staying organized trying to push through to the end of a project and i know that a lot of game designers have their own strategy for how to keep themselves motivated and interested and productive and we we get into a lot of that in this episode we have a whole love fest for gdg as well so look forward to that because i can never be thankful enough of the the cool guys at GDG and the the little community we're building there. And this podcast is all about trying to highlight the people, the people who really work on these indie RPGs and war games and board games. It's going to be the next generation of great masterpieces. I'm telling you right now. And John Fox is going to be one of them. I I want to get right into the interview, so I'm not going to ramble too much this time. But uh, I will say... There was a little bit of technical problems in our connection. So you're going to hear a little bit of cutting out every now and then. But you know what? You can make everything out. It all makes sense. There's nothing major. And it was a great conversation. Definitely want to have John back on the show at some point and see where he's at with his project. And I look forward to hearing your feedback on this one because I'm almost certain you guys can relate with what we were talking about here. And go find him on the GDG Discord if you you want to talk to him. Maybe he can give you a pep talk. I thought it was a, a really energizing and positive conversation. All right, so we're here with uh, John Fox, who's going to talk to me about game design and his game, maybe some GDG, some TG. Say hello, John. Hello, John. Glad we could <laughs> get this recorded. We're going to... Try to make it work. We had some technical issues trying to set this up. So hopefully it... It's all part of the creation process. Yeah, it seems to be. Troubleshooting. But we're problem solvers, so that's what we do, right? That's what we try to do, anyway. So let's start off with uh, just introducing the your game, the idea of your game, and the name of it, because that's what I'm most curious about. Well, the game that I've spent uh, at least uh, one-sixth of my life at this point working on is Ordinary World RPG. And that's a name derived from the hero's literary journey. And, uh, gee, I mean, it's been so many things over the last couple of years from when I started that I like to now think of it as a less of a system and more of a, uh, an RPG toolbox, but not quite on the scale that like something like GURPS is. So a toolbox for a GM to just take what they want. Well, the idea is that, you know, you pick up D&D, you start playing it, and, uh, I mean, in my own anecdotal experience, I don't even know what the lore of D&D is. I only know some of the locations from video games. Same thing with Pathfinder. I don't know any of the lore. I didn't even realize Pathfinder was a separate game for the longest. Yeah. The idea is that once you get your hands on a system, most people will just toss away some of the settings or not bother to learn it. And wind up making their own thing anyway. So that's why there is a setting. I'm not going to push it. Not yet. If people are interested, I might do that down the road. But for the most part, it's just a toolbox. Okay. So you've got, you know, is it designed to be sort of ad hoc, take parts as you want? Or are you still going to design it as kind of a holistic thing? And then you just assume that people are going to homebrew it or steal parts and not use the rest or what? 
Well, I know like my system has some pretty interconnected pieces. It would be hard to split them apart. I think you can take uh, the entirety of ordinary world and split it into larger chunks. It's very um, dividable. It's uh, not quite piecemeal. Uh, there's a, it, it breaks evenly. That's what I'm trying to say. It's, it's oh, yeah. modular. That's good. That'll get more people interested for, uh, for other reasons. Right, right. And that's how I'm now trying to design it. Cause when I decided to suddenly start calling it a toolbox, the whole system was pretty much built. And I was lucky that it was built in such a way where you could just chop off entire parts of it. And it still functions basically as a whole system. Isn't that one of the crazy things about like designing an RPG, like as opposed to a video game or, you know, a board game or something else? It's like, it doesn't really matter how much you put into the design. It's like the, the one hobby, especially that people just hack off whatever they want. They make it their own and they really own the mechanics even uh, and make it their own. They don't just sort of put their own flavor on top of it. Right, and uh, that's evident in a lot of the third-party publishers for the major games. People yeah. write entire settings, they write entire new sections of a game that's already existing, and they may make a living. I mean, obviously the biggest example is Paizo versus Wizards. They pretty much wholesale took an entire game and made it their own thing. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, because I know I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, the artistic, visionary, sort of auteur guy that wants to go and make a single perfect system and, and sort of push that. That's always been, you know, from when I was a little kid and I wanted to just make video games and just make shit. It's always like, I want this to be, have my signature all over it kind of thing. And <laughs> once you get into yeah. RPG design and you see how people really use the systems, it's pretty humbling in that sense. Like they're going to take whatever they want from yours and they're going to like basically scavenge See, now it's funny that you say that it's humbling because I find it elevating that people can just take things and make what they want and it's still considered something great. Like, like I said, there's entire people that make their living off of just, it's almost like an ecosystem. Like you got the big old, you know, wizards of the coast moving through and you have all the other little developers that build off of what they made. And then there's even developers that build off of that and, you know, you don't make a living, but hey, it's that's why it's a hobby. You don't have to make a living off of doing it. No, that's true. I guess it just goes against the idea of that that perfect. You know, it doesn't need any tinkering because you don't don't mess with it. It's perfect already. That's sort of the ideal in my mind. If you could make a system that people don't have to homebrew, because I. But I guess you know people do it whether even if they love a system, they'll homebrew it just for variety's sake. I think they'll. Yeah, I think they're going to homebrew it because they love it. Because they see this, you know, really great, wonderful thing, but it's missing that little personal touch and there's nothing stopping anyone from adding their own fingerprint to it. Yeah, and then uh, the dynamics of any particular group will just be this particular group just hates this aspect of role-playing games, so they always cut it out regardless and it's not a, it's nothing personal uh against the system even. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's just a matter of preference at the end of the day. And that's one huge, huge advantage that role playing games have over any other kind of game is that you can just wholesale, take it out, do what you want. I mean, it's as much as do what you want for the, the game master 
as it is for the players. Yeah, it's sort of a, a do-it-yourself hobby from beginning to end, more so than even, you know, uh, miniature war games and that kind of stuff where you, you can customize things, but there's a lot more balance questions there where in a role-playing game, one of the, the big revelations I had, because I, in, I initially started making my system with an idea that it was basically going to be like a, a massive multiplayer online RPG sort of feeling, but with, you know, NPCs instead of players. And it was going to be, it was like inspired by a sort of, I don't know, some sort of weird video game equivalent. And then when I started to actually make it, it swelled up into this thing that was completely impossible. And you realize, at least I did, that letting go of that control is what allows you to actually make the system. And the best systems almost have the least control over it, which it sounds like that's the direction why you're now calling it a toolbox because it's like, in a way, you don't even want to just call it one system. It's like it's a bunch of subsystems that are useful and people will use them to whatever extent they they feel it's necessary. Right, exactly. So when you're designing... It's, uh, it's not going. When you're designing... uh one of the things we wanted to talk about was productivity. And you said you've been working on your game for, what, a sixth of your life? What is that? And, and how long? Cause I've been working on mine. Uh, if you can even call it the same system, I mean, it would really, it's trying to be the same system, but how long have you been working on yours and what kind of uh, lessons have you learned about productivity in that time? So I've been working on mine for five going on six years now. And, uh, the, the lessons I have learned are innumerable because I, um, I started it as an ignorant child and I've been working on it way into my own ignorant adulthood. So yeah, there's a, there's, there's a lot going on there, but I learned some very important things, not only about myself, but, uh, is productivity in general. And, uh, yeah, you know what that is, how you are productive, I feel is a personal thing. And sometimes you talk to people, uh, they're like, Oh, I like to put on music or, uh, uh, to get some drinks and sit by the fire and just jot down stream of consciousness thoughts right into the notes. Yeah, absolutely. It's For me, the the most uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's everybody's got their own method. So what is what is your process then? Because even though um, you know it's different for everybody, and there's somebody out there who's has your personality type and and hasn't figured out a good way of being productive oh God, I hope yet. There's no one out there like me. <laughs> That'd be terrible. I feel bad for that person. <laughs> but if, if they are out there and they're listening, uh, personally, I spend a lot of time doing nothing, staring to the space, wishing I was productive. And then suddenly an idea will strike me and I'll be, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, you could do this thing in the system? And I think, yeah, that would be great. How do I make that happen? So I sort of sit down and, uh, I remember you were saying that you like to write everything in a notebook before like there's versions and versions before you even hit digital medium. Yeah. I personally like to save the earth so I don't throw paper everywhere, but, uh, oh, wow. I, I use digital. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I'm going to be that guy for a minute there, but, <laughs> uh, no, I just, I just like the, um, the cleanness of digital mediums. So if I don't want something, it's completely gone as opposed to, I can still see the eraser marks and I'm always going to remember that I had a bad idea once. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, totally different. Than mine. <laughs> I'm like, I've got a huge stack of notebooks that I will never go back to. And to me, 
all the, the, the discarded material that I have is like, I see them as basically stepping stones and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's all of the shit that I tried to make work in the past and it got me to where I am now. And so it, you know, it's like, I have no problem coming up with ideas that I'm certain in the moment are going to be the answer and it's going to be the perfect solution. And then next week be like, no, that actually sucks. I can't use that. And then I have no problem accumulating a visual representation of how much bad ideas I've discarded over time. But, uh, so you basically wait for inspiration and then go to uh, a word processor or whatever and just start hammering it out there. Yeah, I uh, I actually write mechanics very stream of consciousness. I just sort of start throwing things down on the paper, and usually I get about fifty percent of the way there, and then I have to stop, look at it. Does it sound right? Does it make sense? And the pro of that is you wind up writing mechanics really fast. The con of it is you wind up revising it a lot, and it, it's sort of like you know throwing horseshoes. Just you throw it and hope for the best. And uh, sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't, but that's part of the process. It's hard to uh, really appreciate what you're saying there unless you give an example. Do you have an example of something that was like it hits you and you start writing it down? Like, I mean, one of the classic examples, I think, in all uh, adventure-type role-playing games, at least, is combat systems and all the different ways you could handle that. Mm, specific example, um, I think combat was... Or, I mean, if we're going to go to the base of the problem, it's the stats that I, you know, particularly chose. So before we go any further, full disclaimer, Ordinary World is 100% a fantasy heartbreaker. <laughs> uh, I'm okay with that. Good to know. Uh, that's what I'm, that's, that's what I want to make and that's what I am making. I believe it will be a massive success commercially, but you can go ahead and I believe in you. I'm in your corner. <laughs> I will accept that without even the slightest notion of sarcasm. Thank you for your support. <laughs> Um, so it is a fantasy heartbreaker. Uh, it's not going to break my heart, but I chose six stats and those six stats just came right out. I was like, well, yeah, you got to have the strength. You, know, you got to be strong. Yeah. You got to have the dexterity. Yeah. You got to be mobile. Uh, uh, constitution. I like vitality better. And then mentality, uh, you know, on. And then the last one so far, it's been a perfect clone of, you know, D and D. And I thought I never liked that wisdom stat. I'm going to choose willpower instead. Never look back. And everyone, people fight me on that. People fight me on that. Huh. Like, eh, let's build power. And I was like, it's your willpower. Like, what is wisdom? What is anything? Like, don't worry about it. It's a mechanical number. Just read the book. Yeah, I mean, everything only has so, as much yeah, meaning was... as you put into it through the mechanics. So if you have a bunch of yeah, shit tied you know. to wisdom, then wisdom is important and relevant. But if that's not what your mechanics are emphasizing, then willpower is definitely a more relevant thing. So that's like an example where... You know, productivity-wise, if we're still talking about productivity, you just, when you're saying you just didn't look back, it's like you know that that's sort of a vision of the stats you want, and you're just going to keep running with it and making it work. Well, uh, yeah, getting on to the, uh, the the more the heart of the matter is a lot. Like I said, a lot of people fought me on that, and I had to actually step back a few times and go, "Am I right, making the right choice here?" Uh, yeah, I think I am, and. But, you know, I could have gone the other way. I could have sat there and just gone, oh, well, maybe it should be a different set. Oh, and just, you know, chew on the same matter over and over and over again. Like Month I, goes by. Who's yeah, fighting you on this stuff? Like, are you just, are you throwing it out on TG and you're actually listening to what they say? Or is you have other people giving you feedback? Because I've gotten 
people obviously criticizing. Um, I my... try to get <laughs> your, your your choice in paper. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I um I try to get feedback from a long from a wide range of people. Uh, it started off on TG because I was just discovering TG when I had just started making this game. And then from there it actually moved on to the original game dev threads. And then I had a, you know, a circle of friends that I would kind of go to. Uh, there was a few people that actually made RPGs for a living that fought me on that. You know, just, you know, lightheartedly, but still it's like these are people that are like, you know, they're veterans. They've done it before and they're like, oh, you really want to do that? And you know, it's not just stats. There was a lot of decisions that I made. And I've actually got a, a really, I think, I think it's a story about how I came to the final system because it never started out how it was. It's, or how it is now. It's, it's, it's a, it's evolved like any project will. Right. So what's that story? Uh, because yeah. I find it surprising that you'd have, like, I'm, I'm trying to think of what kind of person would hear, you know, unusual ideas, which I would consider to be a selling point. If you're not just copying something wholesale, it's like, okay, good. That means that you should be designing it because it's not the same. Ah, but there's the trick. When I first started this project, it it was a copy. It was essentially, I want to make Pathfinder, but I want to fix the gravel. Which <laughs> I, I eventually... Yeah, it was it was as simple as that. I, I just want to fix the gravel rules. And then five years later, I'm like, where have I, where have I been doing with Where am I today? <laughs> it's amazing how that can happen. So, uh, so yeah, it was a D20 system. And uh, I, I just kept building on it, building on it for fun. So I came up with a fucking great idea, and I thought, what if when the player has a bonus or something, they roll 2d20 and then take the better of two? And if they don't have a bonus or something, they roll 2d20 and take the lower of two. Does that, does that mechanic sound familiar? I've never heard of that before. That's amazing. That's advantage-disadvantage for D&D 5th edition, three months before they released the beta with that exact mechanic in it. And I was so proud of myself. I, I was a little mad. I was proud of myself, though. Wow. You so will I came never get credit just, for that. I don't deserve credit for it because it's actually something that probably someone should have thought of, and I'm sure somebody did think of eventually. But, you know, they're not Wizards of the Coast, so they don't matter. Uh, so I came up with this. I was real proud. I showed it to my friend, and he says to me, people don't want to roll more dice. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this mechanic. Ah, oh, shit. People don't want to roll dice. He's right. Like, that's dumb. I feel bad wow. now. And then, yeah. D&D 5th edition comes out, advantages mechanic. Uh, from what I saw, a lot of people really like that mechanic. I really like it. I think it it's really universally play. considered to be like one of the only innovations in 5th edition. Yeah, and it was wonderful. And I read that, and I read all everybody's reaction to it, and I was like, why do I listen to people? Why do I do that to myself? Yeah. But, I love listening yeah, to during people. That but... time, but, yeah, during that time, between that and uh, I decided, you're right, I shouldn't be doing a D20 system. So I just completely deconstructed everything and rebuilt a whole new system in which the player rolls way more dice than a D20 because I am spiteful. And that's how I, that's how I motivate myself. <laughs> Spite is probably one of the greatest creative forces. I, I like to think so, but that's just me. I mean, uh, going back to the whole uh, motivation thing, it's, it's whatever motivates you, whatever gets you sitting in the chair, writing mechanics, figuring things out, testing, making progress. Well, yeah. And let, I want to explain, explore that a little bit more because uh, you were specifically wanting to talk about work-life balance and that's different than like productivity and even motivation in some ways. Is there like uh, a certain 
routine or rhythm or is it just things you try to avoid doing? The hardest thing about um, the uh, balancing work and life is that it's a hobby unless you actually you know, professionally do it, which I don't think anybody really does unless someone else is paying them to do that. Yeah, unless you're so like a for trust fund. Most of, unless you're even like a, a trust fund kid, like you, like say if you work for Paizo, then that's not a hobby anymore. That's you know, someone's paying you to do that. You yeah, do you've got you, a they title. Tell you right, and like yeah, you got deadlines, you got responsibilities, you get all that. So that's when it's a job. Even if you really like doing it, it's in the end, it's still a job. So it's it's sort of hard to realize that when your hobby is starting to become your job that you don't get paid for. And that's when you have to sort of start the balance work in life. I see what you mean because so you've, yeah, you, yeah. you can become obsessed with it to the point where you you start to punish yourself if you're not getting things done like on a schedule. And personally, I find it really good to right. have you know a to do list and priorities and try to be organized because I'm naturally pretty disorganized, and so I have to fight to be organized and stay on track. But I can see it going the other way too, where you're like. I'm sitting down and this is a time slot where I have to get stuff done. And if I don't, then like, you know, your imaginary boss is going to fire you or something. It's like, that's not productive either. Right. That's why you gotta, you gotta balance the two. You gotta find that happy medium. Cause once you got that balance, that's when you're most productive. And you're not going to put out your best work when you're just forcing yourself to do it. I don't think. And which is why these larger companies, you know, they don't just hire one guy and put all the pressure on it. They have whole teams and then, you bounce ideas off each other and stuff. And I think that's, to me, that segues into like the role of GDG and trying to have a little bit more of a community that can discuss things. And theoretically, TG should be that kind of thing too, but it's mostly memes. Um, but you can have like yeah, a, yeah. more of a discussion where even if you don't personally have the energy in the moment or you're not in the zone, you know, maybe somebody else will actually be willing to come by and bounce ideas off of you and, and vice versa. And that's more close to what you get in a creative environment, like at a company. I think that can actually offset that sort of wait for the mood to strike. It um, It has definitely 110% helped me, especially uh, the move from TG to the Discord and then from the GD, uh, the, uh, the TG Discord to the GDG Discord. Yeah. Cause I was hesitant at first, uh, you know, I saw this rumor going around. It's like, oh, GDG's got its own Discord. I'm like, why? The threads don't work. Why would a whole server work? <laughs> and eventually I, yeah, I was like, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. And then after a month, like, or whatever, whenever I went, I wound up going and I was blown away by how much productivity there was there. Yeah. I was there. And it has, I was like, 100% the first guy me. to jump in there. And I was just like, this is going to be, like I was trying to start fires everywhere I could to get people talking on there because I think I, I recognized on the TG Discord that one tiny little sub-channel for game development and game design is absurdly restrictive com- considering all the things that there are to discuss. And in a backwards way, it actually becomes much more active when you spread it out and you give people room because a creative, something as creative and abstract as game design, you can't try to cram it into a tiny box. You have to give things enough room to breathe and organize it in a way that is convenient because people are tripping all over themselves. This guy wants to talk about, 
you know, hiring an editor and this guy wants to talk about dice and this guy wants to talk about artwork. And it's like, that's just a mess. But uh, I've also found when I went to GDG, it was like, not only are these people always interested, like you could bring up anything. People bring up stupid ideas just for fun and just spitball. What if this, what if that? And, but when you do bring in like something you're more serious about, there's somebody there who wants to try to like at least understand it and you can kind of, uh, I don't know if you know the process. This is something that when I learned that this actually had a term for it, it really helped me is rubber ducking where you just basically have somebody listening to you and you're trying to explain something to them, but you're basically talking to nobody and just you trying to articulate your own thoughts is the troubleshooting process. Uh, yeah, actually, um, I, I didn't realize that was a term and it's, uh, I guess if you remember your Sesame Street days, yeah, that's a good term for it. Yeah, but, apparently uh, it came. Yeah, about, I do that a lot. Apparently the term came around when somebody was like, you know, he just had a rubber deck, rubber duck on his desk, and he would just talk to it and try to explain the problem to the rubber duck, and he ended up solving a lot of his problems just by doing that. And at worst, I think that's what GDG is. It's like it's a place to vent and rant. And somebody will come by and give you some feedback, even if it's like shit posting or something. But, you know, you get some encouragement and you get people listening. And occasionally you get somebody who actually legitimately gives you a good suggestion, too. You know, that that's uh, that's really interesting. Like, I'm, I'm glad there's a term for that because I would do that you know, in other discords where I would just, you know, brain dump an entire idea into a thing and then not actually want critique on it. But then I sit there and I just spell it all out just knowing that someone might look at it and like, it's, it's honestly helped me. And I, I actually got to break myself with a habit now that I have GDG and people do give critique because I'll just, I'll just spell out an entire problem and then walk away. Big. No, I'm right. I figured it out. <laughs> well, I don't know. I love that because it's like, you know, I imagine a room, like I was trying to visualize GDG as like a physical place. And I just imagine a guy walking into a room and just, he's already rambling like nobody asked anything. He's not got, he doesn't have anybody's attention. He's just talking already. And by the time he walks out, it's like he's already figured out the problem. He didn't need us. And it's like, okay, glad you figured that out. Bye. And yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's, that's great. And it's like, that's helped me so many times, but it's even better when I think I figured out a problem. I throw it all on the ground. I walk away and I get the problem south and I come back and someone's like, dude, that's dumb. I'm like, oh shit. You're right. <laughs> yeah. You get not so many words, but. No, but you get you get it's strange kind of motivation and encouragement just to know that somebody's at least considering your ideas. It forces you to think them through a little bit more. And that's uh, that's actually another key motivation is you gotta have somebody to to like talk to about. It. Yeah. And for a while, like I had the wrong people to talk to, and that's why my system went through like twenty three, I'm exaggerating, but like 23 of revisions, like fold down, destroy the whole thing, build it back up again. Because I had people that would, I, I'd ramble for like an hour about like just, just real complicated problems, start working through it. And then in the end, I'd be like, what do you think? And I get the letter K and that's it. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. it's rough. Well, yeah, for them, it's, it was just a string of M's. Like somebody was thinking. <laughs> I knew that, that you know, they were just pretending that they were still there. Yeah, no, that's horrible. And that's why something like GDG is like, <laughs> if you're, if you're the type of person who ends up there, then you're inherently interested in concepts. If not to help other people, then to steal their ideas. And it's like, you're hoping somebody comes up with something that helps you break through your own problem, if nothing else. And 
Yeah, I think that's a pretty healthy yeah, ecosystem. Just, like, just anything. Yeah, just even if it's like a step forward, it's like, well, that's better than what I was doing the last month. Yeah, and over time, people, you know, come to. It's kind of like when when you're trying to solve a solve a puzzle and somebody gives you a hint, and then suddenly everything just clicks. That's what having somebody who can talk you can talk to about your project. Yeah, a different term that I don't know if it's out there, but I, I use is like the Watson effect. You know, it's like if you've ever read Sherlock Holmes, it's like. Watson is there and he always like gives suggestions and ideas, but they're never ever what Sherlock Holmes needs, but his bad ideas inspire good ideas from Sherlock Holmes. And that's actually like officially in the, in the books. That's why Sherlock Holmes loves to have Watson along is because he'll say something stupid and it'll (laughs) sort of inspire a much better idea. And there's sort of a deprecating relationship there that Watson likes, but that's what you can also get that is like you go to there and you, you give an idea or a question, somebody gives you stupid feedback that you don't like, and it still helps you because you're like, nah, that's so wrong. I have to come approach this in a whole different way. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I like to say that the best way to learn how to do something right is see how everyone else did it wrong. Yeah. I think that's valid. And of course, in game design, that's, uh, that's, that's subjective, but, you know, it also helps you focus on what you actually want to do with your project. Well, that actually brings up an interesting, uh, like point, a principle of design that I feel pretty strongly about, which is, you know, there, there is right and wrong, but even though it's subjective, you as a designer have to decide that you are the authority at least on your own project, that there is right and wrong. So it's like if you say that something is a bad idea for your project, it is a bad idea for that project. And it's like you can't just say, well, somebody will like it or it's subjective. I don't know about you, but to me that helps me have more confidence in my own ideas and decisions. And you don't get as wishy-washy when somebody does give you feedback, like you were saying people are giving you sort of dismissive feedback. It's like, as soon as somebody says, well, it's subjective, it's sort of like a way of just escaping the, the problem. I would rather have somebody say, no, this is, this is right and this is wrong. And you can kind of set it in stone yourself. You have to have an idea of yourself as being the final authority on it, but you're consulting everybody still. Right. Cause you don't want to go too far off track. You don't want to be in a bubble trying to work on something like that. But at the same time, you know, yeah, you know your bubble better than anyone else. Yeah. So yeah, like when, I don't mind. Get feedback. I have no problem with going into a conversation on TG or GDG or whatever, and somebody just absolutely will try to like destroy you for suggesting an idea because it's so stupid, and they like they will set down. No, this is a bad idea, and that's a good idea, or this is a good game, and that's a bad game. They're so opinionated. I'm like, yes, that's what you should be. If you're passionate enough to make your own project and decide that this is what you're going to put out, you should have strong opinions and be willing to stand by them. And it's like, you can do that and still be polite and decent to other people. Like I'm designing my game because I hate a lot of other people's designs and I'm very opinionated about it, you know, but at the same time, I'm like the number one supporter of everybody else being the same way. You can, absolutely hate my system when I put it out and then make your own and I'll absolutely hate it. But you know, 
good for you. You made it. <laughs> but at least it's progress. Yeah, we should all be tyrants of our own little kingdom, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a good way to put it. Just tons and tons of microcosms. So when somebody wanders in, it's, well, at least they got a choice. It's not one giant tyrant making the same thing. I don't think I've ever gotten negative feedback. And I have in other places, you know, put out more ideas. <laughs> Again, going back to the meme that I've never revealed stuff in this uh, GVG, but... <laughs> Um, like when I do give feedback, even in just with my friends and family and stuff, and it's like, if somebody really shits on an idea, I never, it just motivates me to be like, okay, well, I'm going to make it better. Or I'm going to, now I know what that type of person feels about my system. So I can totally write them off and not care at all about their concern and just focus on this other demographic of people who will like it and stop trying to appeal to those people or, if I, if I think they have a point and I want to try to appeal to them, I'll bring, try to find ways to bring them in or bring my mechanics to bridge that gap. But, you know, it's like a negative feedback to me is just as good as encouragement and positive feedback. And probably the worst thing is that sort of mediocre, dismissive, not really paying attention thing. And that's why I love 4chan's, you know, discussion boards in general is that like, there's almost no lukewarm opinion on anything. It's like somebody will try ripping it apart. Or they'll sort of support it, but there's very little middle ground. You know, I, I, I do actually agree with that. The worst feedback you can get is no feedback. Yeah. That's why I like the, you know, the infighting and the, uh, the memes and stuff, you know, that come out so quickly when somebody suggests an idea. It's like, if you're willing to put yourself out there, a lot of places, you know, the, the, uh, fear is ridicule and, you know, people won't accept an idea, but, for me, it's like if you're going into a place like that, you're you're walking directly into the lion's den, and you're like, bring it on. You're taunting the lions, you know. Give me your worst feedback yeah. because that's what I need in order to get better. Yeah, no, it's like you, you definitely got to uh, you know galvanize the steel. It's like you know, kind of like when you're cooking. Like you ever see a cook's hands? They're all burnt up, but you know what? The fire don't burn them anymore. <laughs> they're not afraid to get burned anymore to make something good. Yeah, you learn and and. uh adapt and overcome. I don't know. That's a saying. I don't know where it's from. Um, so let me ask you about, uh, we're talking about, you know, hating systems and learning uh, from them, but that brings us to a different thing we want to talk about, which is learning from something instead of copying it. Right. So uh, if you remember, once upon a time, I told you that my system started off as a Pathfinder. Yeah. And then that revelation where I made a uh, mechanic that was popular and I didn't realize it at the time. But honestly, I'm glad I'm glad he shut me down because now my system is something I won't say truly unique, but it's, you know, it's something different at least. So it started off as like a Pathfinder club and I made it because I was frustrated with Pathfinder and I started doing all these things and I was actually getting a lot of really positive encouragement from, you know, starting this project. And, uh, you know, eventually when I decided to change it completely, I was sort of lost where to go starting Pretty much the entire project over, I had like large concepts again, rather than I just want to do one thing. And I found myself going back to Pathfinder. So I had to go back to Pathfinder. I had to read that gargantuan book and I still learned. I realized that, you know, like I said, I might be crucified for saying this, but I thought Pathfinder at the end of the day was a really well designed game with some glaring flaws that 
I now recognize as a designer that they probably looked at and go, whatever, that's good enough. We gotta ship this or else we're gonna work on this till Kingdom Come. Right. So, like I said, no matter how many games you play, what games to play, even if you don't like them, there's still something worth learning from them. So, like, you know, read the bad games, read the good games, try to figure out what makes good games good and make that work for your, you know, own little projects, but don't like wholesale copy them because then what you wind up with is something that you made, but somebody else made bigger, better, faster, and sooner with a you know bigger budget than you did. And then you look like a silly little kid for having copied somebody that did something first and better. Yeah, I would say that what I'm trying to say is uh, what I'm trying to say is don't assume that you can do something better than somebody else just because you have seen what they've done. Make it yours, not theirs, but better. Yeah, like there's got to be a distinction between fixing a game or making a better version that you know you call your own or whatever. Like uh, individual GMs, that's one of the weird things about tabletop game design is that individual GMs and stuff they'll they'll fix things. You know, if they don't like the grappling system, they'll implement their own rules for grappling or something. Uh, so your system, I think, has to be pretty fundamentally different, but you can, I like, what I did is I made a list of things that I hate about Dungeons and Dragons. And I just went through that list and I said, okay, let's go right back to the drawing board about how I would approach this to make it make more sense or make it more effective, or whatever. So in that sense, it's like a heartbreaker, but it's, you know, to me, it's perfectly justified because in the end, I'm having a system that's uh, you know, radically different in some ways and structurally different. So I'm learning and, but I do go back. Like you said, I learn by going back and reading them again, reading earlier editions of D and D. And in some ways you go back to like the very first D and D and I'm like, Oh, I don't hate this as much. So, you know, there was something in there. The, I guess the, the honesty of the system is something that I appreciated back then. And, there's just a lot of things you can learn and you start to look at things through that designer's lens instead of looking at it as a player who's complaining about, you know, a type oh, of yeah, experience. Yeah, it's like you, uh, yeah, you, you eventually you'll hit a point where you're in the same position that they were in and then suddenly you have a new perspective. You're not just some dude looking at the final product going like, ah, that's a little crusty. Can't you, can't you make it a little bit better? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I could. Sure. Yeah. Of course anybody could do that. But uh, when, when is it perfect? The answer is it's never going to be. There's, there's no such thing as the perfect game objective. But you also have to, I think you have to remember how it made you feel as a player and keep that as sort of a, I don't want to say it's like a sacred, you know, guide stone or something like that, but there is a point where you have to be like, man, I'm dealing with the same problem they were, and I just need to figure out some way to solve this just so that I'm not like them. And at the same time, you know, remember what it really was. Like, I'm a you have to be pretty introspective and be like, why did that bother me? And why would the thing that I'm doing fix that? And even though it's subjective, like you still have right, to try to right. set that's, you can get a little bit more objective when you at least have a, a certain experience you're trying to avoid and you don't sort of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, it's different. So hopefully it's better. It's like you have to be able to get kind of psychological and get to the principle of the matter and say, yeah, this was because, you know, I wasn't emotionally invested in the stakes of the situation or whatever 
the problem is that you're trying to tackle uh, that ex- initial experience when you didn't see it as a developer, when you just saw it as a system that you expected to work perfectly and be good, and you have these sort of high standards for what you're going to experience as a player, that disappointment that you initially felt, to me, that's something very important to remember, even once you do switch over to being sort of looking at as a designer. Right. And that's why I say, you know, learn from, don't copy. Like, I mean, even if you do start off like I did, copying something at some point i had to stop and remember why i was copying that system in the first place like obviously i didn't think it was all bad or else i wouldn't be copying the damn yeah. like, you know you can only put so many band-aids on something yeah but was- i did learn a lot from going back and reading those you know those pathfinder manuals and i was like yeah they i appreciate what they tried to do let me try and do it my way and see if i think it's any better what do you think about the uh the mentality that i've seen uh from Basically, GMs who want to design games versus players who want to design games. Do you think there's an important distinction there and sort of a, a pattern that's recognizable? Because I kind of think it, it changes a lot, uh, the way that people approach game design. If you've sort of been the forever GM guy versus I played this game and I played that game and now I want to design a system off of that experience. Mm. I do think there's a, um a distinction that can be blurred or bridged, but there's still a distinction nonetheless. When you play as the GM, you see the system from the system standpoint, not the designer standpoint, but the system standpoint. Yeah. And when you play as the players, you're obviously, you know, you're out there, you're the one getting the loot and the treasure and you feel good. And but yeah, you know, you're, you're designed, it's designed to make you feel good, not sort of, uh, you know, the necessary evil. So if you have a problem with it, it's because it wasn't making you feel good or not feel good in the right way. So if you try to make a game from that standpoint, you're obviously going to be like, I want to make the players feel great. Because, you know, maybe where narrativist uh, systems come from. Yeah, a little bit. designed to make people feel good. A little bit, yeah. I mean, unless you're misfortune. That's a little callback. A little callback. I just, just, you know, quick fucking shout out. I really think that was a neat system. Yeah, I can't wait to see how the rules look because it sounds like he didn't even have to write that much, but it could actually end up being pretty dynamic. So I'm sure he'll appreciate us calling back to that. I think it'll be relevant to future discussions that we have here too. But yeah, I think from the the GM, I think has what I've seen and, and I haven't really GM much. And I, part of it is because I played, I started as a player and I immediately hated the experience. So why would I learn the whole system good enough to, GM it like it was I already knew that I wanted to make something different uh, but what I have done and I've tried to do a lot since then is talk to GMs and watch um, videos from like guys who give advice on how to GM like Matt Colville those kinds of guys who will like defend a system that I hate as a GM and say no, it's a perfectly good system. You just have to do this. You just have to tweak that. You just have to come up with this. You have to go through all these fucking hoops and then it's a, you know, it works totally great. And it's like, oh my God, that to me is like, I don't know what to even compare it to. It's like you're punishing yourself, but that's sort of to me, like what the whole like role playing ecosystem was forged out of was this sort of independent group of guys who were just going to make it work no matter how much legwork they had to do themselves. And so they've come up with this wisdom through the ages and they've passed it down. 
is like, this is how you make a game fun, even though the system sucks. It's kind of like the ultimate wisdom of the GM. Whereas a player, you know, doesn't know who to blame. Is it the system's fault? Is it my GM's fault? You know, theoretically, if the system was, was perfectly executed the way the, the designers intended, would it still have been a bad experience or whatever? And it gets really wishy-washy. But when you, when I see GMs talk about no, it, it really gives me a deeper yeah. insight into how much you have to grapple with bad systems in order to make them good. And that's kind of my measuring stick for how good a system is, is like, does this require, you know, decades of experience to quote unquote master or learn the system or learn the tricks to making the system fun. And I don't know how you feel about that, but to me that when I'm designing, that's like the number one thing I want to solve as a matter of principle is like, if somebody's going to run my game, I don't want them to have to fight with it in order to make it enjoyable. Right. Uh, as a designer, you want your system to be as easy to, uh, well, as easy to use as it can be. That doesn't mean it needs to be a simple system. There's a, uh, there's a parallel in the video game world where, uh, there's a joke where a lot of people say, oh, the game's fun if you just play multiplayer. Well, of course, you're dicking around with your friends. Of course, that's fun. Like, that's not the game's fault. It's fun. <laughs> that's, that's you making it work. Yeah. Like, it's still a shit game. Don't try to justify that. Yeah, like you and, can uh, there's, pretty there, much... there is a lot of that. There is a lot of that in RPGs. You're you're playing multiplayer and uh, you're you're tooling around with your friends, and someone who's like, "Oh, this game's great if you just play multiplayer. The, the, the rest of it's garbage." Well, so, yeah, of course the game's fun when you're having fun with your. It's yeah. not the game's fault that the game is fun. It's it's you making it fun. Yeah, I mean, think about like fishing. Like it's people love going fishing with their friends, and they're sitting on a boat drinking and waiting for a fish and it's like you can't tell me that's a well-designed experience or a good experience but if you're doing it with your friends it's like yeah of course you're enjoying yourself because you get to have like a five-hour period where you're just hanging out with your friend in peace like away from your wife and kids or something like right and like maybe it's the experience of having fun with your friends that you're like i recommend it because it's a good chance to spend time with your friends and the system is completely irrelevant but that's sort of like the the thing that people use to explain why they were having fun. It's uh, for a reference that's closer to the source. It's when somebody tells a D and D story, especially the ones that are like, "Oh, and I nat twenty and I, you know, kicked the guy so hard that he flew through the moon." And it's like, <laughs> objectively, is like that doesn't sound like fun. That sounds stupid. You're stupid. But it's like they associate good times with the system. Therefore, the system's good. And therefore, a system that might be bad gets a lot of praise because a lot of people had fun with it. Yeah, and that that kind of brings me to a topic we didn't talk about, you know, discussing this, but I do kind of want to try to get into it, which is um, this idea of when you're designing the game, do you think you can anticipate those sort of what I would consider to be flaws, human flaws, like the justifying an experience as fun when the system was irrelevant do you think you can kind of tap into the laziness, intellectual laziness of people too when you're designing a game? Because the the main game I'm designing, I want to just be like a solid, innovative system that does all sorts of nice things. But on the side, as yeah, I'm designing it, I keep having these like flashes of like ways you could almost cheat to make it so that people have quote unquote 
like more fun by just playing up like the gambling aspect of it, the risk aspect of it, and encouraging sort of the more primitive instincts <laughs> at the table, right? Um, do I think that's possible? Yes, I do. Do I know how to do it? I fucking wish I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of reasons why people have fun is because of their own dumb base primitive benefit. But with that in mind, I do think you can not so much anticipate, but prepare for that in a way is it in my own philosophy. I, I go both ways. I see if something can be broken in a certain way. And then I see if that is fun. And then I see if somebody would be reasonable and be like, no, guys, you can't kick a guy into the moon. Don't be stupid. Because yeah, there is a lot of those people, too. And uh, they get in trouble for, you know, having bad, wrong fun. But, you know, hey, to them, it's all fun, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's there's something really um, abstract and, like, the psychology of it. If you're a really cynical person like I am, like... I, I like to bring up the best in people. Uh, one, one of the reasons is because of how much I hate the worst in people. It's like <laughs> you can make games that really bring out um, tendencies. And I don't know, maybe I, I think about it too much, but I really like the psychology of saying, well, I know that people get attached to their characters, you know, prestige and ego in this fictional world. And, I know these things. I know that he's not, he's, he likes rolling dice and seeing a high number that allows him to do this and that. Like, I feel like I need to come up with alternate systems that aren't about simulating. Uh, well, I talked about it the other day about a little game that I came up with that I didn't even bother to transfer to the computer, but it's basically a, a game where you recreate the story arc, the, the three act structure. And in the first act, your character can't seem to do anything right. And even the basic tasks they fail at constantly, but there's no real stakes. They're not going to die. And, but, you know, the situation grows darker. And then in act two, things get really complicated and they get sort of intrigued, but they hit this really low point where it looks like they have no hope. And then they get this new motivation that comes out of somewhere. And that's the act three where they suddenly they can do no wrong. And even the most dangerous things they're doing perfectly and like, it doesn't matter how you roll, basically, you're going to succeed. And it's a completely, it's a system designed to cheat and prop up a certain experience that happens regardless of the logic of the world. You just will fail early and you will succeed late. And when I tested that with my friends, it went amazingly well. They loved it. It's like there was no logic to it, but it just recreated step by step the ideal story arc. And it, like, gutted me. It was like, no, that shouldn't be satisfying. But it was because <laughs> our stupid human brains just like to have the comeback and the low point and then the climax. And, like, I don't know. That was, to me, that was a moment where I had to reflect on, okay, now that I've done that and I know it actually works, I definitely don't want my main system to actually incorporate that i'm going to have a system that tries to stay true to its own logic and forces players to earn satisfying moments through strategy and preparation and whatever because i kind of had to get it out of my system and be like it's not it's just cheating to have 
things in my game that uh, sort of artificially create the arc that you want to have ideally. And so that was like a matter of principle for me to make a distinction between those two. Right. So, um, what you, yeah, what you're saying is you basically you want to create examples of gameplay that's natural and satisfying as opposed to, you know, uh, not to use this three times in a row, but rolling a D20 and kicking the guy in the moon and going, oh, oh wow. So the GM just said that there was nothing in the system that said the guy should fly out of Earth's orbit. Right, like a celestial body. Right, it should be organic, and on a psychological level, I think you can cheat and bypass as a game designer. Like you can put stuff in your game that you know will recreate "quote unquote" epic moments, you know, on a regular basis, and you know, obviously giving instruction to the GM and stuff. You can encourage certain behaviors and certain things as well, and setting the tone in your rules is is important for that reason. And one of the things I don't like, I guess, is the tendency to just be like, well, whatever your group likes, just use our system, but, you know, tailor it and push it, <laughs> twist it in such a way so that it creates that experience. And I just hope that, you know, you can twist it enough that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish, which not to take anything away from your system. You're saying your thing is a toolbox. And it sounds like you wouldn't care if somebody used your system to create whatever experience they want to have. You're just happy with, you know, the way that the different systems work. And if you put it all together, presumably it works really well, but do you want to, you don't want to try to enforce a certain tone or do you have any, like, that's why I find a a juxtaposition probably between me and you is like, it sounds like you want to create a toolbox for people to make whatever kind of experience they want. The systems will be fine on their own. Whereas I'm like, there's a whole list of things I don't want to be possible in my system. And I'm going to basically scold people in the rules if they're trying to do, you know, the wrong thing with the system because it's designed to do certain things and not other things. Um, so yeah, there is a juxtaposition between uh, what you described in my system, but I, in my defense, not that I'm offended or anything, uh, I hadn't intended to create a toolbox. It's just, um, actually to reference the, the episode we said before where somebody writes the intro after they've made the game to make excuses for what they failed to do. Right. I sort of, I sort of did that, <laughs> but it's, it's on like a, yeah, uh, I've totally done that. Right. Like, wow, I made a system that's actually just the tools, but there is like a running theme. So I don't think I've completely failed in making there, there is themes that do, because I too very much like those moments where the mechanics encourage those rewarding moments as opposed to the puppet master who can do anything they want encouraging those moments. Um, so it's there. It's not as powerful as it probably could be. But then again, I made a generalist system and there are times where I, I actually think one of the most least rewarding things is when you as a player try to do something. And then you say, hey, GM, can I do that? And he says, no. And you go, well, <laughs> why? Like, why not? That sounds awesome. He goes, he flips a few pages and says, well, the rules say you can't. And that's the end of it. And now, uh, uh, now that I bring that up, that's actually one of the major things about Pathfinder was it didn't explicitly say that you couldn't do things, but there was, you know, feats for everything. So obviously right. you can't shield bash somebody without a penalty unless you could, uh, you know, take the feat. And my question was always, well, why can't I? It's just swinging your arm. It's easy. But, you know, some designer at some point made the decision to include that. 
Yeah, why does so, there have uh, to be? The system does handle it, but it just handles it in a way that feels arbitrary. Right, and I think that's a lot of people's problems with Pathfinder. They're not on the same wavelength as the designer was, and they want the designer to change that, but he's not going to not going to do that. Like, they'll just jot it down and save it for the next week, which is the smartest thing a designer can do. Because honestly, at some point, you will wind up in a design infinity continuum where you never release anything because you're always, you know, tweaking things. There's a point where you got to stop and say, that's it. I'm done. This is going out. I'll fix it later. I'm going to sleep. Yeah, that's also part of why, you know, my whole rambling rant there was like, it's part of why I also want to set a certain vision in mind for what my system is supposed to do and isn't supposed to do because as soon as, like, I had to make a decision, you know, it was only about a year ago that I made the decision that it's an adventuring system. It's not a system for handling trading and merchants and power intrigue between politics and all this shit because, you know, you can just infinitely expand the scope of your game. And I was like, why am I doing all of this when the only thing I really wanted out of it was the adventuring experience where you have to play as an adventurer and all the mechanics are going to reinforce the logic of an adventure. And anything that's beyond that, it's just there's a rule that says abstract it, you know, make it simple, get it over with quickly, because that's not what the system is supposed to handle. Theoretically, I could come back and be like, oh, yeah, here's an add-on that handles, you know, intrigue politically and factions and stuff like that more. But I kind of had to decide there was like a genre or a a tone, a theme that everything was going to revolve around. And at least I was going to be clear about it so that people, I wouldn't try to be like a jack of all trades and master of none. It's like, I want to be a master of the one thing. And that's where I managed to kind of rein in those spiraling, endless questions of how to handle more and more and more. So yeah, um, uh, uh, right. A focus system is, Honestly, in one of my opinions, a very beautiful thing because you chose one thing that you want to do and you were able to just fine tune it into an experience rather than, you know, stupid me that was like, I want to do it all. And I made a toolkit instead of a game. But, you know, I, I still like what I made, but there yeah. are times when I'm sitting there looking at my document and I'm scrolling through. I was like, yeah, this is all really coming together. I'm really proud of myself. I just wish I made something simpler to begin with because I'd be done by now and it'd be, you know, a small, beautiful experience as opposed to a grand, sprawling, infinite possibilities sort of thing. See, but uh, uh, I would love yeah, to see on. your system and I'm sure that I'm going to be, you know, again, learning from but not copying. If I do see it, I'm going to want to, because I love systems that do handle, like I love GURPS. It's like one of my favorite things. I bought the book and I've, read them a bunch of times. The idea of the universal system is really appealing to me. It's just for my own sanity, I can't get, I can't start to go that way because I know I will never ever finish it. I want to, I want to start small and then I do think I could maybe expand later into other things, but, um, it was like, I, I love the generic system, like, uh, misfortune when he was talking about that. Like, I love that idea. Your idea, if it's more of a universal generic or, you know, semi-generic thing, if you have your own lore, um, I love all of that. And there would be a strong argument for even somebody like myself. As a designer, I wanted to have this specific thing. But as a player, I love 
the the universal system. And as a GM, I also love it because it allows you to uh, really express yourself more because my system would be a lot of restrictions on, you know, what the lo- what the price of something is and what the, you know, sort of all these little details. You can disobey the rule book and do your own thing, but it's not designed to be as open. And as a creative person, obviously, I'm a creative person. I like a universal tool set because it allows me to express myself in a lot more ways. And then it's just up to the table itself to decide what is our game about and where, what things are we not going to explore and what things are we going to explore using this system. And that's what I've uh, started to recently do is just, you know, let players and especially let the DM because he's, uh, they're, they're the one doing the most work yeah. out of anybody. So if they have option and, uh, and don't tell my players this, but honestly, when I test, I don't use half the amount of systems that I've actually created because uh, we're not doing that kind of game right now. Exactly. But they're yeah. there if I ever want them. And there are times when they suddenly come up and I don't have to think, oh boy, how do I make this system work? Oh, look, it's right there. Easy. Right. Which is, would be that a problem said, in my system because it would be like, oh, well, you know, now we want to handle some aspect that's not quite the typical adventure. It's like, well, the system doesn't say anything about it. It just sort of tells you to get it over with quickly and go back to adventuring. Like that's pretty much what I have to do as a designer is consciously acknowledge that the system has a certain limited experience it's trying to recreate. Right. And that's, uh, that's part of the responsibility of the end user. See, when you're, when your system doesn't cover all aspects and they reach a point where they, uh, have to resolve one of those instances, that's where you get those made up sort of, where you get these forced moments of, um, success or failure or just flat out mediocrity because uh, the system's not designed, designed to handle that. So what you end up with is someone suddenly realizing they don't have the right tool for the job and they just make it up. And like I said, that's not the designer's fault because if they made a good system and it's, it's easy to tell when a system should and shouldn't cover something, then that's up to the player to not get into those zones. Like, uh, this happens a lot with D&D, especially the latest edition, which has been vastly trimmed back from say 3.5. Whereas, uh, the one thing I noticed is there's no crafting. So. Uh, when I run a game of uh, D&D, unless there is crafting and I'm just blind and I can't read. But in my experience, I haven't. So there's uh, there's no crafting. So I don't ever try to bring up a moment where they have to craft something themselves. Yeah, that makes you just gotta, sense. You got to work like, you know, like don't use a hammer to eat cereal. Like that's the end of it. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, that's all you got. So don't blame the system. Well, in the nature of an, a role-playing game being so completely open-ended, it, unlike a video game where you have 14 buttons on a controller and, you know, X amount of data on a disc, it's like the whole promise, in a sense, one of the ideals of role-playing, if you can say that there's a couple of pillars or ideals of role-playing, is total freedom. And that, in some ways, I believe is a myth. And I don't think it should, that should be the promise, but... If you are going to for offer... Video games, if no, for video games, that's absolutely a goddamn myth. That's a selling thing, but do go on. Yeah, I, I totally agree. For video games, but that's the thing, is for video games, it's it's pretty clear that you can't have total freedom, and so people accept it without question. It's like, yeah, of course, these are the controls, this is my character, and these are the things I can do. But in a role-playing game, you know, on tabletop, that's where that promise of freedom comes in, and... 
that's one of the reasons why I really like like the first edition of D&D, where it's just like, no, this is about going into a dungeon, killing something, and getting gold, and coming out, and everything that's not that is irrelevant. And then as it crept into the idea of living in the world and living as these characters in their daily lives, and they're just superhuman people that, you know, you get to experience their mundane moments and their huge adventures and their dungeon moments and stuff, that's where it all falls apart because it's being stretched beyond what it's really supposed to do at the core. And I didn't want to end up with that in my system, which is why I have, you know, deliberate rules about it. But you wouldn't have that problem if you start with the idea of the generic adventure or the generic role playing system or, um, sort of a thing that evolves into that, like a toolkit. Like you say, I love the honesty of that. Like you're making a toolkit that means it will handle these and these things. And it also means you have to use the tools to build the experience you want out of it. Cause that's what a tool is for. Right. And, uh, in, in the scope of making something, uh, so grand is that there are even mechanics that I have almost completely built and fleshed out that I could just drop into the book, but I'm like, no, that's kind of a specific thing that probably won't come up outside of some certain settings. So I, you know, just leave them out. And I, I think about them from time to time, but I'm like, no, I think they got what they need for a generalist adventure. Now, one question I would have about, Let's say you finish this system and release it this year or something. Um, what would you do with like trying to support the game after it's released? Or, you know, do you plan on having a site and a sort of an ongoing relationship with anybody who would be playing it? Or is it basically like you just want to get it out there and get it off your chest and then you're going to move on to something else or what? I would love to actually just release this and move on to something else because I'll let you in a little secret. I actually want to be a video game designer. Not an RPG designer. Don't tell anyone. Uh, that's a secret. And I wound up making, good to know. I'm glad I can trust you. Uh, <laughs> what I wound up doing was I simultaneously decided to start working on Ordinary World and program a, a rudimentary video game. And I said, let me just work on both of these and see which pans out. Well, five years later, you can guess that the video game didn't work out. Yeah. And, uh, that's relatable. <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. I, I'm glad. I'm glad because one of the few things that I ever learned in my college life was uh, I was briefly involved in a game design course, and of course, you know, we were a bunch of college kids who were like, "Let's learn how to make video games," and the teacher said, "Nah, sit down. You're gonna learn how to make a board game." Oh wow! And we were all mad about that. Yeah, we were all really mad about that. We're like, "Oh, dude, this is a video game course. Get out of here!" I learned so much from that simple act of just like you're gonna start at the basics and you're gonna like it. And you know what? I, I did wind up liking it. I liked it so much that I eventually made an RPG called Ordinary World. I think that's amazing that because is. there's, I've seen the opposite example where, you know, somebody says they're going to go take a course and learn how to make video games and they do try to teach them how to make video games and it's just a disaster because they never got the basics from something like designing from tabletop. And even when you talk to people, you talk to some of the best you know, game designers, they, they tell you start with designing board games and de- design card games and whatever and just understand game design principles, period. I know for myself, I, I got the hang of, you know, thinking of myself as a designer or a game designer with stuff like the Warcraft and Starcraft editors and even learning some basic scripting logic and language from those. 
anything that came out in the video game world that was related to uh, game design, like uh, um, Little Big Planet, when that came up, like I made sure to get that and design levels in there. Like level editors was my thing, and so that's where sort of the idea of role playing games I thought of as being uh, limited. And it was only after I tried getting into programming and learning that stuff that I realized I actually hated video game design. I didn't want to do it. And I was much more excited suddenly about designing tabletop games where code will never get in the way. It's humans interpreting the rules and you get to just tell them how they should be interpreting things. So for me, yeah, I did want to be a game designer, but actually I'm much more excited about tabletop design uh, right now. If I could do programming, I'm sure I would love to do that, but it's like a nightmare to somebody like me, the the logic and math side of it. But <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm actually on the reverse curve, uh, having spent so long making a game where anything is possible and having just, you know, confessed my love for very simple systems that do a few things very, very well. I think making uh, Ordinary World has given me, in some ways, a better video game designer, and I'm excited to get into that. That's uh, awesome. To uh, answer the pre... Yeah, and uh, actually, uh, a fun little anecdote. I've actually taken some mechanics. Uh, for those of you who are having trouble testing, which I know is a big issue with very uh, indie developers, especially the TG crowd who doesn't actually have real friends that play games. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this is going to sound hard and terrible because it is hard and terrible, but I've actually taken mechanics from my game and programmed them into Game Maker. And I was, for a while, I was using that to test things. And it helped me learn programming, which is an invaluable skill, but it also helped me test 100% objectively my system. That's very interesting. In a a visual medium. And I I thought that was really great, and I wish I kept on that, but I hate programming. I'd rather throw myself in front of a train than become a programmer. (laughs) Oh, man, I could rant about programmers. Um God bless them, honestly. Yeah, they're the they're, they're the best. That little screen. Yeah, I would love to be um, able to somehow be a programmer and not totally shut off half my brain at the same time. But it, I just can't fit both in the, at the same time. It's like you is a weird choice you have to make between the hard logic of programming and the the endless lateral thinking of tabletop rule design kind of thing. Well, honestly. Uh, what I got from doing that little experiment was my math turned out to be pretty solid, which is something that's hard to do in a subjective environment. And I only learned that by programming with a computer that only sees numbers, doesn't see fun. I think that's a great tip. I mean, if anybody can pull that off and try to test their ideas in that uh, cold, heartless computer environment, you won't have anybody sitting there... I learned a lot about my own system just by having it like a computer run through it. And uh, Map Tools is a pretty easy program to learn how to program. I'm like, you can drag and drop. I don't recommend it. Learn the code, but you can if you need to. Very interesting. So, so uh, going, going back to uh, sorry, going back to what I was saying, I I would love to release the game and be done with it and go and fly away and be a you know a rock star game designer. But at this point, I have a responsibility to the system. It's five years in the making. That's more than any child would ever take to make. I, I, sorry, sorry, sorry to pull this on you, Rich, but you said you've been working on your system for 10 years. Yeah. Children have grown up and are already learning everything they need to know. 
in the time it's taken you to make the game. Yeah, I think that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you think it's cool. That's that's a good sign. So yeah, I've been making this game for five years, and it's it's I have a responsibility to it because it is a generalist system and a toolbox. I mean, you can hand a toolbox to anybody; it doesn't mean they're not going to they're not going to know how to fix anything with it. So I do plan to release the game, and uh, I've I've actually given it a lot of thought because what. Uh, uh, this is a way throwback, but one of the things that I like to do for motivation is to step away from the game and do something tangentially related to it. Uh, the programming the game was one of the things, and thinking about how to support the game afterward was one of those things. It kept my mind on the game, but not directly on the heart of the matter. So it kind of gave me like a new perspective when I did decide to go back on but I never drifted far enough away from it where months passed where I didn't work on the game. So are you going to release some uh, instructions with that toolbook or is it just, or that toolbox or is it just going to be the toolbox and what kind of, uh, if, you know, somebody bought this game theoretically, uh, how much do you feel, you, you know, you say you have a commitment to it and sort of an obligation to see it through to the end, but I'm wondering. Well, I, yeah, like, uh, ideally I would love to release the game with a setting ready to go, but I'm, Having worked on something for five years, I know it's not going to be, it's not going to be an easy thing considering I'm also planning on doing the largest setting, which is, you know, that's uh, a topic for another time. But essentially what I got is if you were to buy this game, flip it over, look at the back of the box and see what it's included. You get all the different systems, which make up the entire system, instructions on how to use it, a little bit of navel gazing just because uh, that's, that's what I like to do. Uh, you know, it's it's nothing you wouldn't see in a normal rule book. Like, oh, here's uh, how you run the game. Here's how to run the game. Good. Do you kill players? You know. Okay. Uh, just just general general like advice. philosophies of the system. Yeah, yeah. Like advice you can take other places, but also applies specifically. There's a little bit of lore in there, but it's also still relevant to. Them. So yeah, you get the instructions, you get the tools, you get a little bit of t- taste of the lore. All that for the amazing price of, you know, whatever I arbitrarily just. I see. Um, yeah, I mean, if your video game career doesn't, doesn't take off and you end up stuck in GDG forever, uh, I'll still have you back on the <laughs> it's podcast. Not, it's not and... a terrible fate. <laughs> not a terrible fate, honestly. No, but I think that's, uh, wonderful to have a system that you see through to the end because another thing is, this is sort of a, a point of comparison. I know other guys who love to start projects but never finish them and they'll keep them around, you know, for 10 years for as long as I've been working on mine. But they, you can tell when you talk to them that they really don't intend to ever finish it. And it's just this pet project that uh, will never end. And it lets them tell themselves that they're a creative person and they're an artist. And until you actually decide, no, I'm going to release it and it's going to be good and it needs to be good because other people are actually going to see it and play it, you never get to the real problems of that system or that thing that you're designing. And that's something that initially when I started working on my system, it totally was, you know, this sort of dream project that had no beginning or end and it was just exploring ideas basically. But over time, it's become more focused and more... I'm more determined to uh, actually finish it and put it out. And that's what GDG has sort of been this missing puzzle piece that came in. And it's like, now I have a literal audience that, 
you know, I would love to put the game out for not only just a general audience, throw it out in the wild and see what happens, but a specific group of people that I'm interested in feedback from and stuff. So having, I, I know, we, I know we've covered this a little bit earlier, but you know, it's worth stressing again. I cannot stress enough how much a relevant audience is. It's like you, you, you take your, your, your project, you show it to your, you know, your dear old ma. And she goes, wow, that's really great. But she's excited for you. She's not excited for the project. She's going to going to stick it on the fridge with your crayon drawings that are going in the system at some point. You know, that's positive feedback, but it's not the right kind of positive feedback. But like when you take it to somebody and they go, wow. So, and they start asking you more about the project and not like, oh, well, so like, what do you do? And how long you've been working on? Do you got any other skills? And they're excited about your project. That's when you know. Even if they don't care about the project, but they can give feedback related to the project, that's when you know you've got at least something to bounce something off of. Yeah, 100% agree. It, it makes everything uh, sharper and it grounds it in something so it's not just sort of floating endlessly. It's like, um, yeah, because there's like a certain set of people that if they don't like it, I'll be disappointed if I release my game, whereas if I'm just in a vacuum or I have sort of these... Uh, you know, well-wishers that don't actually care. Um, it's like I can always just pat myself on the back and sort of, or pity myself and be like, yeah, yeah, I tried something and I don't know if it was good or bad, but, you know, it'd be much better to have somebody give it a shot and whether they like it or not, at least I have my answer of whether, you know, it was worth it and how, where I need to improve and how I can improve. And the idea of you releasing it and just saying now it's finished and you're going to move on to something else I think that's totally valid. You're going to get not only the experience of releasing it, you're going to, whatever feedback you get, I'm sure you can incorporate into whatever you do next. And there's nothing stopping you from ever coming back to it if you want to and tinkering with it or fiddling with it or making a patch notes sort of addendum to it. That said, I still do think that um, doing anything, anything creative at all, it doesn't matter if you never finish it. It doesn't matter if you do finish it and it's garbage. Anything at all, especially the uh, the pet project thing, because I know a lot of people that do pet projects, and then uh, you know they, they they make it to like the planning stages. It's a solid project; they just never pursue it. Uh, I am one of those people. Sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I still think having pet projects is good, even if you don't ever intend to go back to the fact that you did it and you tried it. As long as you don't end up with a pet cemetery. <laughs> Don't do nothing but make pet projects and then never pursue them because, yeah, you're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, pet graves there. You go, wow, that could have been something. I remember when I intensely loved this hamster and it died a month afterwards. So it's good to have pet projects, even if you don't intend to finish them. Please try to put something out, even if it's hot and guarded, even if you want to kill yourself afterwards. The point is you still did something and who knows? it, It might surprise you. Well, and that, to me, is a matter of, uh, you know, creative principle. Um, I grew up, you know, in school and everything with, you know, art class and stuff. And you get people who are really into drawing. And, you know, I, I, I like to draw, too. And there's a, a mentality where you always sketch, but you never ink. You know, it's like, and that's sort of a meme in, in among artists. is like, it's easy to make a sketch that looks good because you see the potential in it. But when you actually try to make the finished, finished version and not have any sketch in it, that's when suddenly 
all the mistakes come out and you can, you suddenly get judged very harshly on the smallest details. Whereas as long as it's in that nebulous phase of potential, um, you can always sort of wiggle your way out of criticism and say that it was good enough or it, it could have been great. Yeah, it was it's, just a sketch. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, as a fellow, um, hobbyist artist i i totally get the whole sketch and then when you ink it it just looks like garbage and you're like what where did i go wrong yeah so yeah but it's like sometimes it is like like you said uh worth taking it further and further and further because you sometimes you get a sketch that's terrible and it comes out to look actually good and then sometimes you get the opposite well and don't you think that's where you learn like when you really try to finish something that's when you actually have to learn the hard lessons Whereas if you're just always in sort of a nebulous planning phase, you never hit the rocks, you know, you never actually have to make it work with real people or, you know, like if you finish the drawing and you hand it to somebody and I've, this has happened to me plenty of times, I, I finally finished something and somebody's, I showed somebody the sketch and then I, I'm like, okay, cool. He likes the sketch. I'll finish the whole thing. And then I finish it and they're like, nah, that doesn't look good at all. And it's like, oh shit. Now. <laughs> Now I know that I have to work on this, this, and this. And I think the same thing applies to game design or probably any creative thing, music or whatever. You have to try to finish something, even if you know it's not going to turn out well, as the learning process to always be learning, finish it. And, and, you know, you don't have to put it out there for the public or like try to advertise it or anything like that, but at least finish it to the point where it can be tested or it can be judged. Right, absolutely. It's um, you know, I've heard this said before. Uh, an idea on paper is worth you know way more than an idea in a head because it's something somebody can see, yeah, good or bad. They can see it, and you you either learn from it or you know you realize you hey you done did get it you done did did it kid. <laughs> you know? The point where I lose respect for somebody is when they have a self image of being a great creator without having finished anything and. The worst probably is the rotation of projects that each one prevents the other one from getting finished because he always says, well, you know, I got this going on, so I can't work on that anymore. And then as soon as it gets to a point where it gets difficult, now there's another project that comes in and eclipses that one. And But he never gets to a point where he realizes none of them are ever going to get finished. And it's because he always wants to escape that last stretch of struggle so i'm glad you know that this uh oh, go ahead. this actually reminds me of a um an anecdote a reference uh, a, an odd one at that uh, and it's but as a game designer it's always stuck out in my head uh, it's like two different types of players so uh game grumps uh the original game grumps uh aaron hansen and john tron back when they first started yeah uh so i remember one specific instance when they were playing a game couldn't tell you what it was but it was a very hard game, and when Aaron was playing, he would play until he took, you know, until he died. Whereas uh, John Tron would play until he thought he had did not have enough help until, and then he would kill himself. And it pissed Aaron off, and like he said something that kind of resonated. He said, "If you keep going further, you'll get better at the later parts. But if you keep killing yourself," then you'll never get better at those later parts, and then those will be really hard when you go to trial. That's not verbatim, but that was the gist of what he said. That made me realize something relating to uh, project, project creation. 
Yeah, the principle holds true mm-hmm. because, you know, the the frontier, the edge of what you have not explored before is where you learn stuff. And, you know, just as a matter of principle, that I think holds true in life and everywhere. It's like if you're not actually trying to push beyond what you're comfortable with, you don't develop and you don't get stronger. I mean, the same thing applies to literally like working out and stuff. Like if you don't increase the weights that you're lifting, you're not going to gain muscle mass. It's like you, you have to push yourself if you want to develop. And then when you want to do something beyond or more within your comfort range, you'll be much better equipped because you did try something and failed at it or, you know, hit that limit that you can't get past yet. And that's where you I think it's sort of this ideal creative zone where you want to have an ambition and, you know, the sort of reach beyond your grasp kind of idea. You know, that actually, um, I don't think that relates to the, uh, the, one of the earlier topics, balancing work and life where it's, yeah, absolutely push the design and keep pushing it and keep pushing it. And then when you hit that point where you're like, nah, that's it. I'm done. Like, nah, shut up. Keep pushing it until you hit that moment. Uh, the uh, athletes call it the runner's high. Oh, yeah. Where you reach that moment of Zen and you're just like, yeah, that, that was worth pushing through. But definitely don't keep going after that until you like literally kill yourself. <laughs> so yeah, you got to hit that moment where you got to balance work and life and reset that, that game design high where you're just at the apex and don't push yourself until you go way past it and wind up screwing everything up. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think uh, it also reminds me of something I saw uh, Scott Adams put out a book about uh, basically managing your own energy level uh, as a creator. And, of course, he made Dilbert and he's done other things and stuff. So he's he knows what he's talking about. And his basic philosophy was all about, you know, finding that balance and that having things that even if they don't logically make sense, they give you energy to work on what you want to work on and certain people you hang around with and even the physical environment that you're in has certain psychological associations with it. So if you have a workspace that's like a dedicated workspace in your house or your wherever you are or a, a coffee shop you go to or whatever it is, physically moving to a different location, even though it's so irrational, it shouldn't make a difference, your brain associates it with getting things done and you will slip into a more productive mode of thinking by doing so. Whereas if you kind of have this all-purpose uh, area that I know a lot of us do, and it's very hard to get away from, especially with a PC, you know, where you can play video games and work on stuff and, you know, browse YouTube videos and just do whatever you want, it all gets blended together, whereas a specialized workspace can actually help. And that's just one of many examples, um, you know, listening to certain kinds of music. That's, um, yeah, that is a, that is a huge boon. Uh, you know, when I usually, when I create, I have like a playlist that I listen to or like, you know, certain people that I talk to, you know, usually my, uh, my feedback group. But now here's a, here's a good counter to that. Sometimes, I don't know if it's just me, but sometimes I run into something that I call inspiration stagnation, where I keep going to the same coffee house to work or I keep listening to the same music. Oh yeah. Or I keep talking to the same people and then I wind up stuck in a rut and I'm doing the things that were previously productive, but they're no longer productive. And sometimes it takes me a little bit to realize that. Yeah. And that's, 
that's also something you got to watch out for. That you is gotta, tricky. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, it's tricky, and that's that's another aspect of balancing work in life. You huh. got to uh, you got to keep your inspirations fresh, and sometimes it helps you give a new perspective on something. And sometimes it comes from the most unlikely sources. Yeah, which is why in my, my own personal workflow, yeah, my own personal workflow, I'll sit there and sometimes not do anything for a week until I'm doing something unrelated, and then an idea just strikes me. And what you do then is you write it down as quick as possible because it's gone just as fast as it. But, you know, when I go back, now I have that new thing to look at and see if it works. Yeah, that's very interesting. You can't really make inspiration into a habit. You have right. To, you, you pretty much have to keep refreshing. Well, you got to be inspired. you got to be new and fresh. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why um, something like, I mean, in GDG, there is, I believe, an inspiration sub-channel where the whole idea is just post shit that inspires you and maybe it'll inspire somebody else and something like that I think can, right. can be useful too where it's like even if you just see what inspired somebody else it's like it, it will just kickstart something in your brain and get you thinking differently that's why I like to be exposed to something as chaotic as as TG or GDG it's like People, there's people out there who are thinking about completely different things than I am, and they're worried about completely different things than I am. And even if it doesn't directly relate to what I'm dealing with, it's enough to get me thinking in a different vein as I empathize with that person's problems or inspirations. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, that's a that's a very good thing to do. Like not only drawing inspiration if you're making a game, drawing inspiration from other games, but other people who are making games and then other situations related to that. And it's like, yeah, you got to keep your inspiration fresh and, you know, period, that's it. You can draw inspiration from practically anywhere, especially if there are other creators. Like you said, they, uh, you know, they might not always fit together perfectly, but they do fit together. Sometimes when it doesn't fit together perfectly, you see it in a different way. Yeah. I know for myself, one of the things that as a game designer, um, you know, slash armchair psychologist, as I, always try to keep in mind actually to further further draw that point home if you need a really solid example of um you know drawing inspirations from unexpected places i found out recently that nintendo everyone's favorite game design company love them or hate them used to i'm not sure if they still do but i know it's still one of their core values is that they take game designers whose hobbies are not video games yeah I've and heard that's that. actually how a lot of uh Really popular games. Uh, one of the best examples I would give is Earthbound. Uh, the guy was like a, an accountant or a tax copywriter or something like that. <laughs> and he had never, never even really played games before, but he played one, wrote down a bunch of notes and made one of the, one of the most beloved games of Nintendo's history because he had no goddamn clue how to make games. He just had a good idea that, you know, made a good game. Right. And when you don't have those preconceived uh, sort of ruts that you're following as everybody else does. That is when you can get a bunch of different inspirations. So being a, being in a mind space that's far removed from what you're trying to develop, you know, obviously you are trying to develop your game still, but if you can put yourself in a totally different pair of shoes and, and ex- think about something else for a long time, you can come back into it suddenly with just a lateral thinking sort of a problem solving uh, mentality. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why uh, I like to like nieces and nephews and like little kids and stuff like that. If you hang out with them, like psychologically, they're so transparent and they're so 
like everything is on the sleeve sort of thing. And you see the really basic human nature exposed so easily. You know, it's like the emotionality and the instincts and stuff are, are, you know, right there on the surface. And when you get too intellectual and too theoretical in game design, I think it's great if you have like young relatives and stuff that you can play with, play some game with them, play a game that you've played a million times, but play it with them. And suddenly you'll notice something that they'll point out that, you know, just seems like a revelation because it's so simple and obvious, but you've adapted to it as an adult. You're mature enough to overlook that, but a kid won't. He'll just be like, this sucks. You know, this whole thing sucks. And it's like, wait, why, why are you saying it sucks? It's like, well, there's one thing that sticks out to him that you are coping with as an adult. You're being mature enough to, to be polite enough to look over it. But he's not. He's totally dismissing the whole thing based on this one thing. Yeah, no, it's uh, sometimes you grow up and you're perfectly trained to avoid the elephant in the room because it's uh, impolite to point it out. Yeah, and like one of the examples in in a video game context, I remember uh, I had a nephew that um, there was a racing game, and I was looking forward to playing it. You know, got family together and we were going to play this multiplayer racing game, and. When we sat down, it was like, oh yeah, we know this is going to be fun once we get racing, but the loading times to just get to the main menu and do stuff in the menu was so long that my nephew completely lost interest in playing the whole game and wanted to leave. And I was like, holy, that's, that's something that as an adult, I'm like, loading times is not something I consider anymore. There was a time when it bothered the shit out of me when disc based games were new and it was like loading times was like three minutes to just load something. And it bothered the hell out of me. But now I'm old enough that I just sort of accept that. And what, seeing it again from sort of my nephew's point of view was like, that's suddenly totally unacceptable. And it made me, as a game designer, realize the importance of those little things that you can totally uh, acclimate yourself to accepting. But you want you don't want to have to do that. You don't want to force players to acclimate to bullshit you want to give them that streamlined experience and pay attention to those uh, petty things because those petty things will be an, a severe obstacle to the people who, you know, just don't feel like putting up with it. Right, right. And sometimes it's the, uh, the little things that trip you up and, it, it, you know, you miss out because of it. Like the, the, honestly, uh, I, I think that's something that as a game designer, the more you do it, you know, the further you take projects, the more you become a little bit more conscious. I mean, there will always, always be that moment when, you know, the little kid walks in the room and just blows your mind with some, some simple dumbass logic that you were too smart to see. <laughs> but, yeah. I uh, think like RPGs. I, I think as a game designer, yeah, you'll just eventually learn to either hide or move aside or just avoid altogether the little thing. So I disagree. I think it's, I think there's a very real, slippery slope that can happen where you you start to compound the problem with more problems if you don't step back and just look at the bigger picture because i mean you can kind of just look inward for solutions instead of letting somebody else come by and just blow the shit out of your whole idea and point out a problem that you've been trying to solve by making it more complex for example so i think you can go either way unless that's what you I, meant I, yeah you know what I think you, I think you changed my mind. I think you're right. Sometimes you do just gotta step back and, 
look at the whole picture. Like, again, that's why I love something like TG or GDG when, you know, as much as we are supportive and whatever, like, I don't want it to ever become just a hug fest where people don't criticize things. It's like the harsh criticism is what is the wake up call that something needs to change, or at least this person thinks it needs to change. And you need to realize that that's a valid perspective. And, you know, there is also the time when the kid walks in and he complains about something and he's just a dumbass and he's wrong and he's a kid and he doesn't understand <laughs> that some, that it's totally fine and he's going to have to get used to it. So, Either way, it's like you got to have that feedback, something to change your mind or to at least shake it up and see what falls off. Right. It's a, it's a matter of being open to criticism, but not wide open where everything just gets put in there. And honestly, at the end of the day, who's really making the game? Yeah. No kidding. Committee, uh, design by committee sort of syndrome. Yeah, for sure. Like you definitely want to avoid design by committee, but at the same time, you definitely want the committee's opinion. Right. Even if it is yeah. a opinion. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing is like a bad opinion is still, if you're a smart person, I mean, you can still get a lot out of a, a thoughtless reaction to something that you present. It's like theoretically you want to have the genius who comes by and perfectly considers what you're trying to go for and then harmonizes it with the the status quo and all of these sorts of things. But it's like sometimes you just need a dumbass to say something and just give you that food for thought that'll be like, yeah, I think I'm okay now because that guy's criticism was, you know, so petty or so bad that it means that it must be in a pretty good position if that's the worst he can complain about. Something like that too. Like, but staying. Right. There's also that when the criticism uh, becomes petty and then it's like, wow, like, is that it? Like, I'm not going to change that, but like, wow, is that really it? Uh, actually, uh, as a tangent, that, that's also a certain point when somebody does point out a flaw and you have to make the decision, is that going to change or am I just going to accept that as a flaw? Yeah. I, I think that's one of the hardest skills as a game designer to it's, accept. You know, obviously, you want to make the perfect product, but then there's always that moment where you're like, it's not going to be perfect. I have to be okay with that. And it becomes like exponentially weirder and more tricky in a role-playing game where you have a GM who's arbitrating the rules and making up half the shit himself. And it's like, is there a problem with the system or is there a problem with this person or what, where is the real problem? Because you can always say, like I said in the last podcast, like the rule is you have to have fun. And so you're not doing it right unless you're having fun. You can have sort of this blameless system and then put all the burden on the players. And I find that so fascinating, whereas a video game is like, you know, if it's a side-scroller or whatever, it's like you have a pretty good idea of just a user who is directly interfacing with the controls that you created or you designed, whereas here it's like even if a person wants to experience your game in sort of an ideal way, it might be impossible because there's a person standing in their way and he's the GM. Right, right. So, yeah, and that's why maybe sometimes, uh, sometimes a system might get a bad rap. It's because it's, uh, difficult to use the system. But then as a player, you're two parts removed from what could be the problem. It could be the GM, or it could be the system, or it could just be the way the designer worded something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's, uh, as a player, there's a lot to consider. As a GM, it's never your fault. You're the GM. Full zero. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's why I could talk about game design forever, because it's like, you can take the simplest thing that everybody accepts as true, and if you really analyze it, usually it's way more complex, and at the same time, it's way simpler. Like, it's, where does the problem really lie in something like Dungeons & Dragons? You know, I've played it with Dungeon Masters who made it fun despite the things that I hate, and I've played it with guys who, uh, you know, made it way worse than it needed to be. And I started to be like, the system is not this bad. You're just bad at <laughs> being the GM. Like, I've started to defend the system. And if you ever go through the rules, like, I don't know, this is just a, a straight-up tangent, but if you ever go through the rules of Dungeons & Dragons, I have never heard of somebody using the dodge action on their turn, but there is a thing called the dodge action, and it's like, I'm reading the rules have to learn what it is and have to criticize it because I already don't like the system. And I see that and I'm like, <laughs> why has nobody used this? This system is actually, I've thought when I, you know, before I read it myself, and I was just sort of going off of the uh, communal wisdom of how to play the game, I thought that it didn't have anything like that. And then I read the rules. It's like, there's cover, there's, there's dodging, there's these <laughs> options that nobody's ever used. So even then I'm like, I sort of despair at the, the way that people use these game systems and word them. And it's like, I, at this point, I can't even fault Wizards of the Coast because they did put it right there in the rules and people are just ignoring <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain point where it's like, well, what do you want? I put it in the book. I can't help it if you didn't read the book that you paid way too much money for. But at the same time, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? do? So that's the question. At some point, you got to hand it off to the guy and be like, listen, man, it's all in there. I just need you to read the book. And they're like, yeah, 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 I get to it. And then he doesn't read the book. <laughs> Hopefully, I um, that is one thing I've actually very consciously been uh, aware of when I'm making my own game is it is a modular system, but I also don't want people to forget about things. So I try to uh, I try to group everything together in you know nice, handy-dandy modular sections. Yeah, but uh, one thing I did notice about Pathfinder and Wizards of the Coast is you can read that book a few times and sometimes realize, oh, hey, there's a rule here that I needed and I didn't realize it was here because it's out here, it's like in the corner. I totally agree. In a section, the organization and presentation of of the ideas ends up being sort of this uh, final boss you have to beat as a designer. It's like you've <laughs> come up with this whole thing. You've you've fought through all of the obstacles of figuring out a system and now the real fight begins. It's like now you have to somehow communicate that to people who are half interested and already have their own biased idea of what they're going to do. And like it, that is a real final struggle. Yeah, it is. And that's a, it's something that I don't think many game designers are equipped to handle because uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's not their job, but as an indie developer, it is your job. Everything's your job. Yeah. Artwork, unless like, unless you got money and you could pay somebody to do it, then yeah, it's not your job. Right. Like even that that little drawing, you know, that breaks up the page and just mentally refreshes somebody. You know, it's like you could get into the psychology of document design if you want to, and and really obsess over how to present something aesthetically in a way that turns dry, boring rules into this experience of just reading the book. Right, right. It's uh, all about that formatting. That's why head of there's me 
them big bucks. Yeah, no kidding. As every editor, as every editor listening to this now laughs. I think everybody uh, on GDG is on some level struggling deeply with that problem. I know there's probably like two guys who actually have the skills themselves or somebody on their side who's doing it for them. And it's like everybody's envious of that, but like everybody else is trying to find that, uh, that strategy for presenting stuff that you're not going to go insane after you've designed the whole system, just trying to communicate it to other people, especially, you know, and I feel sorry for people who English isn't their first language and, and, you know, they're trying to explain very abstract concepts of experiences and mechanics and things that barely have a language, even in English. You know, I, I gotta say, fucking hats off to the people, especially on GDG. It's like, I, I, I don't know. I didn't know that Artificer was um, not of the English language, whatever, whatever Finnish people speak. But, um, <laughs> hats off to the people that write these fucking games in English, not being their first language. Absolutely. I can, these people, these people know an entire, first of all, they know an entire second language. Second of all, they can explain how to play an imaginary game using colored rocks with numbers on them <laughs> in a language that they picked up halfway through their life. I barely speak English and this shit's hard for me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a miracle. I don't know. There's an extra level of passion that has to come out of that. And I think that's why they deserve oh, shit, a yeah. certain level of entitlement and, and opinionated. Uh, it's like if, if I had to learn Finnish or Dutch to argue a point, I would give up, you know, I would never, <laughs> never bother. No, yeah, no shit. Like definitely hats off to these people. Cause like they, they, they could tell them just like, oh, I'm write it in my language. But, uh, I, I guess for whatever reason, for, um, that, that might not be a bad topic one of these days is why, why English versus a native language. Yeah. It's all, but, uh, it all yeah, comes hats down. off to them for sure. Well, I think that was a great discussion. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we close it off? Um, you know, I, I think I got my steam out of the teapot. I think I've said everything I needed to say for now. Well, thank you very much for coming on. We managed to do the whole thing, even though there was some lag and some disconnects and problems in between. I think it's going to be, yeah, a- like I said, all part of the uh, creation process. Yep. And, uh, it'll teach people, you know, that, uh, when you come on here, we'll try to make, we'll do whatever it takes to, get the conversation going because it's worth it. Because an idea on paper, a finished product is better than one in a head. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. See, I took notes. <laughs> I wrapped it up today. in a nice little package. <laughs> well, that's uh John Fox with Ordinary Worlds. It's going to come out someday. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be a toolbox for you guys and you can judge him and shit on him and bash him in the GDG if you want to, or help him out if you need some help. And we'll talk to you next time. Uh, we'll have, we'll definitely have you back on sometime and hopefully the connection will be stronger and, and everything will be a little bit smoother too. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice. All right, Rich. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Game design isn't easy. I think we can all agree on that. There's so many things to consider. In an RPG, especially, there's there's levels of abstraction and 
disconnect between you as a designer and the players. You've got middlemen among the middlemen, and it can be hard to understand what the right move is. But the important thing is that you have people who can give you feedback. You have something to work off of. You have an idea in mind of who you're aiming it at. And I think this discussion has really proven that once you get tapped into the right group and you can start to test out your ideas in a more concrete way, that's when everything starts to click and you can really start to tailor your game for the people that are going to end up playing it. And even just for your own sanity's sake, you can stay more motivated and and more focused. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you look forward to future episodes. We've got plenty more on the way. And if you want to find where this is, uh, wherever you may have found this, right now it's being hosted on Patreon. You don't have to subscribe to listen to it, but there is a Patreon for this. And it's hosted directly on the Patreon itself. And uh, that's how we're going to be delivering it in the foreseeable future. All you got to do is go to patreon.com slash Pullman. That's patreon.com slash P-U-L-L-M-A-N and follow it. Make it a bookmarked page. Come back to it on a weekly basis. I hope to update it every week. And uh, if you want to subscribe, you can. Uh, it would be something you get charged per release, not per month. You know, you don't have to support it. I consider this to be a free podcast. But, you know, obviously any support is wonderful. Uh, I'm so glad that Patreon has a great setup for podcasts. So look forward to that. I think this is going to be a great service for everybody in the game design community and RPG fans and indie fans. Everybody pile in, show some love for these people, and we'll see you next time. 